Welcome to Royally Screwed. My name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on the tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're finally moving outside of Europe to cover one of America's most famous Native American chiefs, Sitting Bull. We're taking a bit of a departure from larger-than-life and sometimes unbelievable stories to finally cover someone who was, at least in my opinion, a bit of a nicer person. Now, the name Sitting Bull may be familiar to many people, but if you're like me, you probably did not grow up learning everything about him. I'm hoping to remedy that fact with this episode, though that is also the point of this show as a whole. As someone who grew up in the United States, it's often surprising how little of Native American history we learn. So hopefully this will be the first episode of many to cover the truth of the original residents of this continent. So without further ado, let's go back in time to 19th century America and Sitting Bull still stands. Our history lesson will be slightly different from normal. Instead of focusing on the nation, we're going to focus on the people, specifically the Native American tribes. As for the time period, Sitting Bull lived to see the time both pre- and post-Civil War in the United States. Luckily, his story is a separate matter from the American Civil War, so we don't have to cover that in this episode. All you do need to know about the state of America is that the area Sitting Bull was born in was known as the Dakota Territory. This land was bought by America during the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. The Dakota Territory encompassed all of North and South Dakota, most of Montana, some of Wyoming, and a little bit of Nebraska. None of these would become states until right before Sitting Bull's death. The major Native American group we are going to be talking about this episode are the Sioux people. The Sioux was not a single tribe itself, but a group of connected tribes living mostly in the north-central United States and south-central Canada. There are seven tribes that make up the Sioux Nation, and in order not to make a fool of myself attempting to pronounce their names, we can divide those seven tribes into two groups, the Dakota and the Lakota. First, we'll discuss the Dakota people. Once again, the Dakota is not a homogenous tribe, but it is still referred to as the Dakota tribe. In fact, the Dakota can be further divided into the Eastern Dakota and the Western Dakota, Strange that we didn't divide the states like that, huh? Anyway, the Eastern Dakota people are referred to as the Santee. They live in modern-day North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Iowa. The Western Dakota actually refers to two groups called the Yankton and the Yankdenai. Chris, why didn't you just refer to all of these groups when you mentioned the seven tribes? Good question. Because the Santee, the Yankton, and the Yankdenai are not three of the seven tribes, but three subgroups within the Dakota people. What I'm basically trying to get at is that the labels we use for Native American groups often do not do justice to the very distinct nature of their cultures. The Western Dakota people have sometimes been referred to as the Nakota. This would be incorrect, as the Nakota actually refers to the Sioux people living in Canada. However, Nakota, Dakota, and Lakota all mean ally or friend in their native languages. Dakota and Lakota languages are very closely related, and most speakers of the two languages can understand each other. Nakota, on the other hand, 
has evolved in a way so that it is not as mutually intelligible for the other two languages. Now, let's move on to the Lakota people, Sitting Bull's actual tribe. The Lakota are also known as the Tetan Sioux. Despite the other main grouping of Sioux being known as the Dakota, the Lakota only lived in the two states now bearing that name. The Lakota can be divided into seven subtribes. What? More divisions? I don't think that should have come as a surprise by now. Luckily, we'll only need to know two of these subtribes, the Oglala and the Hunkpapa, the latter being Sitting Bull's subtribe. Did you remember all those names? If not, just remember Dakota and Lakota. I'll make sure to remind you if I use any other groups. Now, I don't think I have to go into too much detail about the relationship between the Native Americans and the government of the United States. The history of America is the erosion of Native culture. If that's a statement you don't like, this episode probably won't be very enjoyable for you. While white settlers had been encroaching on and taking over native land for centuries by this point, the 19th century was more or less the last stand between the United States and the remaining independence of the native tribes. The Sioux were a determined lot, and from 1854 to 1891, a series of conflicts between the United States military and the Sioux tribes would become known as the Sioux Wars. Many great Sioux leaders would come to be known during this period, and their names would be remembered for ages to come. Red Cloud, Kicking Bear, and Crazy Horse. Among them is one that stands out among the greats, though. The man who, despite his name, stands head and shoulder above the rest. Sitting Bull. As I said before, Sitting Bull was born in the Dakota Territory in 1831 to the Hunkpapa sub-tribe of the Lakota people. His great-grandson has said that their family's oral tradition states he was born somewhere in southeastern Montana along the Yellowstone River, a place the Lakota referred to as many caches because of the many food storage pits the tribe had there. His parents were Jumping Bull and Her Holy Door. You might be surprised, but his name was not Sitting Bull at birth. In fact, it was Jumping Badger, which sounds like it might as well be the opposite of what the name he'd come to be known by. Also, his childhood nickname was the Lakota word for slow, which referred to the careful nature he was said to exhibit. The actual childhood of the boy Jumping Badger is not well documented. It would probably be alright to assume he had a fairly normal Lakota childhood, so our story will fast forward to Jumping Badger at age 14. A Lakota hunting party was sent out on a raid against the neighboring Crow tribe to take horses. Young Jumping Badger was allowed to join the group, which included both his father and his uncle. The young man displayed surprising bravery and tenacity during the raid, successfully helping to capture Crow horses. When the party returned to their tribe, Jumping Badger's father held a celebration for his son. It was here that Jumping Bull was given the Lakota name Tatonka Iotaka, which roughly translates to Buffalo who set himself to watch over the herd, or more simply, Sitting Bull. With this, as well as several gifts from his father, Sitting Bull was now a full-fledged man within the Lakota tribe.
Sitting Bull gained a reputation for being a brave warrior who remained fearless in battle. He joined the Strongheart Warrior Society, a group tasked with the protection of the Lakota people. He also joined a group called the Silent Eaters, a Lakota tribal war organization. With Sitting Bull helping to lead, the Lakota managed to push their hunting territories further west into the lands of other native tribes. Eventually, he was made leader of his people. With credentials like those, Sitting Bull clearly was not someone you wanted to see on the battlefield. It was only a matter of time before this brave warrior came face to face with his greatest threat yet, the military might of the United States. The year was 1862. America is in the midst of the Civil War. Citizens are still moving ever westward into Native American-controlled territory. It really was a match made in hell for the tribes of the Northern Plains. No longer able to live calmly with their lands being taken, several bands of Dakota warriors took action and killed somewhere between 300 and 800 American citizens. Now remember, Sitting Bull was in the Lakota tribe, not the Dakota. So why would I bring up something that did not have to do with his tribe? Well, what difference was one letter in a tribe name to the United States military? During the following two years, the United States Army, still in the middle of the Civil War, mind you, kind of bigger things going on a bit further south, retaliated against the Dakota tribe. But, as I hinted earlier, the army did not stop with just the Dakota, which meant that Sitting Bull finally had to take serious measures against the white invaders. In 1864, Sitting Bull was forced to defend a village against 2,200 American soldiers. Even with the help of the Dakota, Sitting Bull and his warriors were forced to retreat from the incoming force. But Sitting Bull would not stand down. His path had been chosen. Even being shot in the side in September of 1864 could not stop him. Sitting Bull had started his war against the white man. His name was Red Cloud. He was a chief of the Oglala Lakota, perhaps one of their most important chiefs in history. His people lived in an area known as the Powder River Country. This was an area that covered the land between the Black Hills and the Bighorn Mountains, including the drainage basins of the Powder, Tongue, and Little Bighorn Rivers. And no, we're not there yet for those of you who are making a guess as to where this is going. The land Red Cloud claimed had previously been claimed by the Crow Nation, who themselves had signed a treaty with the American government back in 1851 that allowed U.S. expansion into that area. Thanks to the treaty, what became known as Bozeman's Trail, a path from the Oregon Trail to the gold fields of Montana, was formed. As to be expected, Bozeman's Trail brought in many hopeful settlers looking for their fortunes. Due to Sitting Bull's efforts, the Crow had been pushed back, allowing the Oglala to move into northern Wyoming and southern Montana, into the Powder River country. The Oglala were not the Crow, and they were not as passive towards the American people as the latter tribe was. In 1866, Red Cloud began leading raids against American forts, hoping to push back the tides of Manifest Destiny. The series of conflicts would eventually become known as Red Cloud's War. 
as fighting continued, Sitting Bull and the Hunk Papa joined their Lakota brethren. He laid attack to numerous forts for two years. As the fighting continued, the American government decided they needed to end things. However, a full military operation would be impractical. Though the Civil War was now over, the United States had undertaken the massive effort of the Transcontinental Railroad. The Army did not have enough forces to protect the workers of the railroad and the soldiers in the Northern Plains. The railroad took priority, and so the government decided to seek a peaceful end with Red Cloud. Red Cloud refused to sign a treaty until American soldiers left their forts in the Powder River country. The government allowed this request, though after the soldiers left their original forts, Red Cloud burned them to the ground anyway. Apparently, this act of transgression was not enough to make America change its mind, and the surrounding tribes signed the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868. One of the details of the treaty was the creation of the Great Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. Red Cloud and his allies agreed to move their people into the area if it allowed them to continue living peacefully. However, not everyone was happy with this treaty. Among that group was Sitting Bull, who even went so far as to tell the missionary sent to get him to sign the treaty, I wish all to know that I do not propose to sell any part of my country. While other Lakota tribes moved their villages into the new reservation, Sitting Bull continued his attacks, once more refusing to back down. As you should be expecting by this point, I know this is only episode 3 but there's a precedent, things got worse. White settlers, pioneers, and military excursions persisted in the Northern Plains states. Sitting Bull remained to stand against all of them. In 1873, Sitting Bull's forces even successfully stopped the construction of a railway through Sioux territory. But the real game changer was when gold was discovered in the Black Hills. For those of you who don't know, the Black Hills are a mountain range mostly located in South Dakota. For centuries, the Black Hills have been sacred to whichever tribe occupied the land at the time. The Treaty of Fort Laramie, despite forcing the Sioux tribes into reservations, had granted protection of the Black Hills as a favor to the Native Americans. But, as we all know, gold is a very motivating factor in the history of America. Of course, Sitting Bull and his forces refused to let the American people mine the sacred land. In 1875, tensions reached their limit. President Ulysses S. Grant decided it was time to take action against the local tribes if it meant the U.S. could mine for gold. Even though the Treaty of Fort Laramie had forced the local tribes onto the Great Sioux Reservation, there were still many holdouts. In November of that year, President Grant ordered that all tribes within the area of the Black Hills move onto the reservation. Anyone who refused to comply would be considered hostile. You see, Grant knew that most would be unwilling to comply. This would finally give the military a reason to use full force within the Dakota Territory. In February of 1876, Grant finally issued the full order. Anyone who was still living in the Black Hills was a hostile force to the United States of America. As I'm sure you can guess, Sitting Bull and his people had refused to comply. 
with all the hostilities coming together, it was nearly time for Sitting Bull to meet his most famous foe. Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, born in December of 1839 and graduated at the bottom of his class from West Point in 1861. How's that for a character introduction? Yes, he did in fact graduate last in his class. However, he still graduated as a trained officer and just at the right time in history. With the American Civil War kicking off, the Union Army was in dire need of officers. Despite graduating last in his class, yeah, I'll try to keep bringing that up, Custer's superiors in the Civil War often remarked that he had potential as a cavalry leader. He was even promoted to Brigadier General by age 23, and then very quickly shipped off to fight at the Battle of Gettysburg. Custer continued his military career throughout the Civil War and was actually present at Robert E. Lee's surrender to then-General of the Union Army Ulysses S. Grant. After the Civil War, Custer was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and sent off to handle the Native American situation notice the heavy air quotes in the Northern Plains. He was actually the leader of the military group that was tasked with protecting the railroad from Sitting Bull's forces. I'm not going to downplay Sitting Bull's prowess when it comes to warfare because he was one of the greatest of the time, but Custer had led forces in the deadliest war in American history. He couldn't stop Lakota forces? Sounds pretty graduated last in his class at West Point to me. But that's not all Custer did. Being a white military leader in Native American land is enough of a situation. But here's the real kicker. Custer was the one who sent out the call that gold had been discovered in the Black Hills. He was the one who would end up pitting himself against Sitting Bull in a battle famous to this day. As the United States Army continued their assault on native hostiles, the local tribes living outside of the Sioux Reservation turned their hopes towards Sitting Bull. By this time, he was already known as a great leader, not only in battle, but also when it came to medicine and spiritual insight. Also a note, a lot of people will wrongly say that around this time Sitting Bull had become the head chief of the Sioux. Seeing as both the Lakota and the Dakota despite both in their own rights being multiple smaller groups put together, acted mostly as smaller independent tribes. If anything, as I said before, he was a well-respected chief among the tribes of the Northern Plains. He managed to bring together other major tribes, like the Cheyenne, to hold back against the tide of American expansion. After a successful battle in mid-June of 1876, Sitting Bull and other tribal chiefs moved their people into the Little Bighorn River area. Yes, we are finally at Little Bighorn. After moving into the valley, Sitting Bull and the other chiefs decided to perform the Sun Dance. This is a very important ritual to many native tribes. In Lakota tradition, it was a spiritual rite handed down to them from the legendary figure White Buffalo Calf Woman. As I am not Native American, I personally don't feel like I could fully do justice to describing what the sun dance is. Just know that it involves songs, dances, and fasting of both food and water. A lot of sources I saw mentioned some 
absolutely grueling aspects to the ritual, including nailing leather strips into a dancer's chest. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but a major part of the Sundance was self-sacrifice in order to obtain aid for the tribe. From what I can tell, the goal of the Sundance is to eventually enter a trance or vision state and receive a prophetic vision. Sitting Bull famously received a vision during his Sundance ritual in which he saw soldiers falling into the camp like grasshoppers, which he took to mean a decisive victory against the American army. Maybe Sitting Bull did receive a prophecy from the gods, or maybe he was just that confident. Either way, on June 25th, 1876, Custer's army descended on the camp hoping to wipe out the threat once and for all at the source. Unfortunately for everyone hoping to hear of the epic clash between Last and His Glass Custer and Sitting Bull, the protagonist of our story did not partake in the Battle of Little Bighorn. However, his wisdom is said to have been what guided the Native Americans during the battle. Custer's mistake came with the assumption that he would be fighting against 800 Native Americans, when in reality there were at least twice as many in the camp, some historians claim an upward of 3,000 Native American warriors. But even with that information, Custer only had 600 men. I don't know what he was expecting. The American military was met with a fierce counter by the Native forces, leading the charge of the Lakota or Crazy Horse of the Oglala and Chief Gall of the Hunkpapa. Now, because this is a show about human beings and not about war, mostly because I don't particularly care about military strategy, I'll cut right to the chase instead of going on about how each regiment of each army fought. Needless to say, the American army did not fare well. 258 American soldiers were killed, Custer among those numbers. It was, and still remains, the worst defeat the American army suffered by the Native Americans. For those of you who might not know, the Battle of Little Bighorn is also called Custer's Last Stand. There was an almost immediate effort to memorialize Lieutenant Colonel Custer as an American hero. However, he was very much the inception of his own demise when he decided to break America's treaty to protect sacred land. And his efforts put him in the path of sitting bull. Finally getting to use an expression that I hope doesn't undermine this important point, when you mess with the bull, you get the horns. <laughs> Though the Battle of Little Bighorn was a great victory for the Native Americans of the Dakota Territory, their celebrations could not last long. Obviously, the American government would not stand for this crushing defeat. Thousands of soldiers were sent off to take care of the Native tribes who still refused to live on the reservation. And even when others began to surrender to the United States, Sitting Bull remained resolute. He would not give in but he could not stay in his homeland. In May of 1877, he crossed over the border into Canada with the remainder of his people. Things did not fare much better in Canada. His people remained hungry and powerless. After four years outside of the United States, Sitting Bull finally gave in. He and his people 
were put under heavy security for almost two years before they were allowed a peaceful existence at the Standing Rock Reservation. Even though it doesn't really fit with the narrative I want for this episode, I would be remiss if I did not mention that Sitting Bull took part in two different tours as a source of entertainment. During his first tour as part of the Sitting Bull Connection, he met Annie Oakley. Yes, that Annie Oakley. They hit it off so well that he symbolically adopted her, giving her the name Little Sure Shot. The second time he went touring was with Buffalo Bill Cody as part of his Wild West show. Despite having previously been a menace to the American people, Sitting Bull was incredibly popular and apparently gave speeches about how he wished for better education for the young and reconciliation between his people and America. In 1889, a new movement began stirring out west in Nevada. A group of Native Americans had, as to be expected, grown tired and angry with the white settlers. For almost their entire existence, Native tribes in America had relied on the buffalo as a source of food, among other things. The phrase, using every part of the buffalo, was very true. However, American encroachment saw the steady decrease in the population of buffalo due to hunting. Thus was formed the Ghost Dance Movement. This organization was formed with the belief that the dead would rise and that Native Americans would retake tribal lands from the white invaders. This movement eventually spread east into the newly disbanded Dakota Territory, now the modern states of North and South Dakota. Though he himself did not join the movement, Sitting Bull allowed members of the Ghost Dancers to perform their rituals among his people. The American officials stationed in the reservation began to grow nervous. Sitting Bull had once been a symbol of native resistance to the American government and its people. They did not care if he was a member of the Ghost Dance movement or not. The fact that he was around the dissenters was enough, so they planned to arrest the Lakota chief. On December 15, 1890, American officers in the reservation gathered outside Sitting Bull's house and ordered him to come with them. It did not take long for the others living in the area to realize what was going on, and Sitting Bull's arrest was met with fierce resistance. At one point, a Lakota man fired his rifle at the police officers in charge of the arrest. Either out of surprise or anger, instead of firing at the man who fired at him, the police officer fired his gun right into the head of Sitting Bull. He went down immediately. After a life of standing up against the tides of American control, Sitting Bull had finally fallen. Sitting Bull's body was originally buried at Fort Yates in North Dakota, but he was then transferred by his people to a grave in South Dakota. Then again, in 1953, Sitting Bull's descendants exhumed what they believed to be his body and had it buried one last time near his believed birthplace. A monument to him stands there today. And that will wrap it up for the story of Sitting Bull, the man who stood ever strong against those who wanted to take everything from him. I'll be honest here, I did not entirely know what to expect when I started making this episode. 
I've always had an interest in Native American culture, so I definitely wanted to get in an episode early on about a Native leader. I did not expect to write an episode that I actually found similar to the one I had just previously written, episode 2 over Vlad the Impaler. Both were men born into a land constantly under the threat of control from a much larger, much more powerful nation, and both refused to back down even when they were forced to retreat. I'm sure many people might say I might be reaching a bit far with this comparison, but I think these are the sorts of stories that will make up a decent portion of Royally Screwed. People who refuse to back down in the face of overwhelming odds, which would then lead them to becoming a hero to their people. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Next time, we're finally going to explore our first female ruler. Once again, we're taking a long trip from Lakota lands in the northern US to the other side of the world where we will explore the life of the only female emperor in China's history, Wu Zetian. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers.